Let's pray together as we prepare to enter the Word together. Lord, I praise you for the songs we've sung, exalting your name. Oh, you are wonderful. You are good to us. Lord, I pray that we would choose to follow you and that today we would gain a clear vision of who you are, that we might be moved to walk that road with you with strength and endurance. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. When I was in high school, a freshman in high school, in a high school in Oregon, I had the opportunity one time to come to Boise to run a cross-country meet. I was all excited. This was the biggest meet of the year for us. We were running in Ann Morrison Park. So as we prepared and came over and got ready to and began the race, I uh, was excited about finishing this race. But as I began, my legs started to hurt. My left leg, it started to hurt worse and worse, but I decided... As I went, there was a point at which I decided no matter what happened, I was determined to finish this race. As we ran, we could see the spectators, see where the finish line was, and I kept that finish line in mind, and I decided if I had to crawl across that finish line, I was going to finish this race. Kept going, it hurt worse and worse. At one point, I had to jump across a creek and could only jump off my right leg and land on the same leg because it would have been unbearable to land on the other one. Hobbled my way towards the back of the pack. Finally, amidst the encouragement of my teammates and the spectators and uh, my coach, made it across that finish line. You may say, that was pretty foolish probably because I found out a week later my leg was broken clear through and I had a stress fracture. But I was determined to finish that race. You see, the Christian life is much like that. It's a race in which we have to endure over the long haul through some very painful things at times. Things that would deter us unless we have our mind fixed on that finish line and who's there at the end. I really like the way it's stated in the book of Hebrews verse or chapter 12 where it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, or finisher of our faith. He's at the finish line. He's done. He's walked where we are going. And therefore, he's there cheering us on. And if we in our Christian lives want to endure, then we need to learn more and more to fix our eyes on Jesus as we run this race with endurance. I must admit, though, looking at my own life, I'm often dismayed at how easily my eyes get distracted, how I get caught up in paying bills and kids' problems and all the details, mundane details of life that we all have to deal with and face. Maybe you can all relate to that. I think probably you can. You see, it's hard to keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of a world that is hard and difficult and painful and crazy so often. But I want to encourage us today to be people 
who run the race with endurance, who fix our eyes on Jesus and keep our eyes on Him. We as a church, not just Cole, but the church in general, need to do that. Even the church tends to get caught up in buildings and finances and uh, programs and all the things that we do that often can be a deterrent or a distraction from running the race. Just like me running the race, I could have easily been deterred by my own pain or by the beauty of the river or by the flowers or the playground. Some nice distractions that would have been wonderful that would have kept me from finishing the race. So the question this morning before us is, how can we run the race with endurance, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus? Well, we will be looking at just a brief scenario in the life of Jesus as an infant, only six weeks old through most of the passage, from Luke chapter 2. Turn with me, if you would, there, to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 and following. And I think we'll see a couple things as we go through this passage. One, I hope you catch a clear, fresh vision of Jesus, who he came to be, who he's described as, even as a baby in his mother's arms, six weeks old. And as you catch a clear vision of Jesus, hopefully you can hold that image in your mind. And then we will look at some suggestions, some encouragements on what it takes to have spiritual eyes, eyes that will allow us to see the spiritual world, God at work, even in the midst of our mundane life. I I picture this a little like the infrared uh, night vision that the armies come up with. I don't know a lot about it, but I've seen pictures where you look through and no one else can see what you can see. You can see motion, you can see bodies moving, you can see even in the darkness with those special infrared glasses that they can make. And I want us to develop spiritual eyes, spiritual vision that can see God at work even when no one else can. That will allow us to endure the race, even when it's painful and difficult. So I'd like to read these verses, verses 21 of Luke chapter 2 through 38, to give you the overall picture of what's going on as Jesus is uh, newly born, and then his parents bring him to the temple to be dedicated. And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, Then he, Simeon, took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, that you let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. To the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. We want to look at this child and see some characteristics of who this child is that was brought to the temple that day so we can catch a fresh vision of who Jesus is. First of all, it says when eight days were completed, he was circumcised. Now consider this for a moment. Circumcision is uh, a rite of a normal Jewish boy every time he was born. It's common in our country. I've seen two of my sons circumcised. But when you stop for a moment and consider, this was God himself become a man. God himself is a helpless baby, submitting himself to the rite of circumcision, submitting to the law, submitting to what God had asked the people, the Jewish people who were following him to do. And it says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, Jesus is one who came as one that was fully human, submitted to the law so that he could redeem us, so that we could be adopted as sons. See, Jesus, the first point I want to make about who Jesus was is that he was fully, completely human. He was a little baby, just like us. Sometimes we think, well, he was God. I mean, did he fly around the room? Did he change his own diapers? You know, what did he do? Was he weird or what? No, he was a normal baby who cried when he got hungry. He was a normal baby who wet his diapers and cried when they needed to be changed, who was utterly helpless. Consider for the moment, for a moment, way back in Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, and when he spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be firm ground, and there was firm ground. Let there be man and woman, and there was man and woman. He simply spoke, and it happened. That God, the creator God, became a child who didn't even know how to speak, who had to learn as he grew and developed physically how to say, Abba, Mama, Dada. You see, this Jesus, first of all, was fully, completely human. Why is that important? Why is that significant? Well, because if he was like us, 
fully and completely human, then he can understand the struggle as we run the race. He can relate to the temptations we have, the difficulties, the pain, the rejection that we experience as human beings living in a fallen world. Notice here, when when they brought the child, when they brought the baby Jesus, at about six weeks old, you see, uh, according to the law, the mother would bring the child and would be purified, the mother would, after giving birth. If she had a male child, it was after 40 days. And if she had a female child, it was after 80 days. Now, I'm not sure why that is, why the difference between the two. Although I suspect it's because Little boys are so active, mom had to get on the job twice as fast with, with them as, the, as with a little girl. I don't know. But they had, she had to come and be purified, give a lamb and a, either a turtle dove or a pigeon to be sacrificed. If she could not afford a lamb, then the mother had to bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. Now we see here what Mary brought, verse 24, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In other words... Jesus submitted not only to being an infant that was helpless, but he submitted to being in a poor family that could not even afford the normal offering for purification. Part of that may be because they as a family had to come up with five shekels to uh, redeem the firstborn. Every firstborn son that opened the womb, they had to bring five shekels to redeem them, buy him back. Now, five shekels in that day was almost a month's wages. So Joseph and Mary had to come up with that and present uh, um, present him. But notice there's, there's a real sense here that, that though these amazing things are said about Jesus, he's just a normal baby. Notice verse 33, after Simeon says all these wonderful things about Jesus, his father and his mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. Why would they be amazed? I mean, after all, they had already each had the angel Gabriel come and say, this baby is going to be amazing. (laughs) And they had had the shepherds come. talked about this last week. Saying, do you know what we saw? The angels were singing, glory to God, because the Savior has been born, this baby. And yet, as more things are said about him, they were amazed. They just had a hard time believing all these things about him. Why? Well, because for him, for them, he was just a normal child. That's the amazing thing to me. Do you realize the miracle of God himself submitting to become fully human? It's been said that perhaps this is the greater miracle, far greater than even him being able to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again from the dead. I mean, if God himself could become a helpless baby, if Jesus was God incarnate in the flesh flesh and bones like us, then he ought to be able to die for our sins and rise from the dead like he did. The point, I think, of all this is that Jesus is like us. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it this way. This is why it's so significant, I believe, that that Jesus came as a child. Where he says, Since... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So this Jesus we are to fix our eyes on is, first of all, fully human. He understands what you're going through. We all long to be understood, don't we? Don't you just long for someone to know what's in your heart and to be able to really communicate the deep concerns and pains and temptations of your heart to someone who would really understand your struggle? You never can seem to do that perfectly with another human, can you? But Jesus does understand. This Jesus we worship understands. Secondly, Jesus is not only fully human, but he's also our hope. He's the fulfillment, actually, of all the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament, and as I read through it and study the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament points and moves and directs itself up to that fullness of time I read about in Galatians, of when Jesus came The hopes begin all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Remember where Yahweh, God, said, There will be one born of woman, a seed born of woman, who will someday crush the head of the serpent, of Satan. And from that time on, all of Israel was looking for the one who would come, the one who would redeem, the one who would set free, the one who would destroy the power of Satan and is the power of death in their lives. On up through the, the Old Testament, um, all the way through, there's promises that a Messiah would come, that one would come to redeem the people, to set them free, to buy their redemption from sin. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to one someday who would be a final sacrifice who would die who would forgive us forever. The promises to David that one of his descendants would someday reign and be a king, a Messiah, an anointed one who would reign and finally be the master and the Lord that we all long to follow, that we were created to follow. You see, the prophet's words all the way through, the redemption that happened from Israel, all of those things point towards Jesus, this infant son, this baby that Mary and Joseph brought into the temple that day. You see, Jesus is fully human, but he's the fulfillment of all our hopes, all that we long for. Notice how he's described some of the words. Simeon says he's the consolation of Israel. It's described how he was looking for the consolation of Israel. That had become, by this time, a technical term for the one that Israel was looking for to redeem them. Isaiah 40 Remember that passage, comfort, oh comfort my people. A servant is coming, the suffering servant to set you free, who would be crushed for your iniquities, for your sins. So Israel was looking forward to that consolation, the one who would comfort us and deal with our sin and provide comfort day to day as we walk through life. That's Jesus. He's the one who provides comfort. Anna says she was looking for the redemption of Israel, the redemption, the one who would redeem, buy us back from our sin 
and set us free. Now, I realize what we're describing here are things you're familiar with, but I want you to catch a vision of Jesus as your Savior, as your Redeemer. These are truths I know that many of you have thought about for years, but that's what it means to fix our eyes on Jesus, to go deeper with these simple truths of who He is to us. So He's our hope, and then He's also our salvation. Notice what Simeon says in verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Jesus is the Savior. He's the salvation of all of us. And notice he says he's the salvation of all people, not just Israel, not just the Jews, but everyone. He's a light to the Gentiles. Everyone is either a Jew or a Gentile. That encompasses the whole world. Most of us are Gentiles here. And God has allowed us in because of Jesus coming, being our salvation. The salvation of all mankind. As Bill pointed out, Jesus, the name Jesus, is the name Yeshua or Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. He's the one who saves us, who sets us free. And he offers his salvation to anyone who will believe. That's the miracle of who Jesus is. You don't have to be a Jew to be saved. You don't have to be a Baptist or a Methodist or a Catholic. Or you don't even have to be a churchgoer. You don't have to be someone who's particularly moral to come to Jesus. You don't have to be someone who has cleaned up your act and gotten it together to come to Jesus. You don't have to be a pillar in the community. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to be anything to come to Jesus other than someone who will admit their need for a Savior. That's all it takes to say, Lord, I need you. I need to be saved from my sin. I need someone to set me free. And he will come into you and live inside you. That's what we celebrate today as we celebrate communion in a few moments. That he is that to us, our Savior, who has set us free from our sin. When I was an intern in seminary, I had the opportunity to teach a Bible study at Stanford University on the campus in a row house. I didn't know very many people in this row house, but uh, I knew a few, so we started a little study. And as we began teaching it, I thought, hey, let's do something spiritual here. Let's pray for the salvation of one particular person in this row house. And everybody in the row house said, I mean, everybody in the Bible study said, oh yeah, let's pray for Jeff. Jeff would be a great one to pray for. I said, fine. I didn't know Jeff, but I just thought, Sounds good. So we started praying for him, and then a little later, I discovered who Jeff was. Jeff was the one guy in the dorm who obviously hated Christianity. He would argue and fight with the Christians. He would find ways to undermine what they were doing. He was the wildest partier in the dorm. He was the one that caused problems for all the Christians. And when I heard that, I thought, Why did you have to pick Jeff to pray for? You know, God may need a little help. Why don't we pick someone a little closer to the kingdom? (laughs) You know, let's, let's give him somebody easy to work on and we'll eventually maybe get to Jeff down the line. Well, we began praying for Jeff. 
Within six weeks, Jeff was coming to our Bible study. Within nine weeks, he had accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Well, I uh, took my foot out of my mouth. And uh, (laughs) you see, Jesus showed me that he is the Savior of all mankind. Anyone who will admit their need. There's no one who's a more likely prospect. Anybody can come. That's the joy of who Jesus is. He's the salvation of all mankind. He opened the door so anyone can come in. He's fully human. He's our hope, our redeemer. He's our savior. And he's also, this passage shows us, the revealer of hearts. The one who divides one from another. The one who shows us where we really are. You see, Jesus is one that, as you draw close to him or are exposed to him, he always has an impact on you. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. Notice what happens in verse 34, where Simeon has been talking about the wonders of this new baby who would be the salvation of all mankind. And then it says, Mary and Joseph were amazed. I think Simeon noticed this. And he turned to them and blessed them, it says. And then he had a message for Mary, not for Joseph. I'm intrigued as to why that is. I think perhaps it's because Joseph wasn't going to be around long. We find out in the next passage that he was there when Jesus was 12, but he's never heard from again in the scriptures. I think he probably died shortly after that. So Simeon has a message specifically for Mary. And notice what his message is. Behold, this child's appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. I think the picture here that Simeon has of one who's appointed for the fall and rise is that Jesus is like a stone, a rock. And you either, when you come in contact with him, you either trip over him, fall on your face, or you step upon him and rise up With him as your foundation for your life. Either you trust him as Lord and Savior, or you fall over him. But he has an impact on everyone he comes in contact with. No one can be neutral about Jesus. Either you embrace him or you reject him. It's like if someone gave you a million dollars, said, here, it's yours to spend. You have a choice. Either you're going to accept it and start spending it, Or you can refuse it. Stuffing it in your mattress is essentially refusing it. I'm afraid too many of us stuff Jesus in the mattress. We want him to be close by, but we don't want to stand upon him as our foundation. But what uh, Simeon tells Mary is, your son, this infant son, will be one that will cause division. Some will reject him. He'll be assigned to be opposed. That word means to be rejected, to be hated, to be insulted, to be spoken against. You see, this Jesus is one who does come as a suffering servant. And Simeon says, by the way, Mary, what you see him go through will break your heart. Notice how he puts it, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. And Simeon uses a word for sword here. You see, there were two types of swords mentioned in the New Testament. One is 
a smaller sword that a Roman soldier would carry for battle, and the other, the one he uses here, is a long, broad sword, double-bladed sword that had to be wielded with two hands that the barbarians used in battle. He says, Mary, it's that kind of sword that will pierce your own heart, that will go into your soul. In other words, you will experience great pain as you watch your son suffer. How many of us as parents would want to have a message like that as we looked at our six-week-old child, our son or daughter? By the way, this son's going to bring great, great pain to your life. It'd be hard to hear. And I wonder why Simeon, why God, through Simeon, gave Mary such a message right now. I suspect it's because, as a mother, she would be tempted to do whatever she could to protect him from it. And she might in some way get in the way of what God had called him to do, to suffer for us. So she, he lets her know now to say, Mary, it will be painful, but this is part of the plan. This is part of what Jesus must do, is suffer for the world. He will be rejected. He will be opposed. He will be one that will reveal the hearts of men and women. You see, Jesus is fully human, fully God. A crying, helpless child and the creator of the universe. The judge and yet the savior who died for you and me that we might be set free. He's the hope of every longing, the desire of every heart. The young girl who sleeps with her boyfriend because she's longing to find love somewhere. What does she really long for? It's Jesus. That's what she longs for. She doesn't know it. The man in midlife who decides to buy a sports car and run off with somebody else. What is, what's the desire and longing of his heart? It's Jesus. The lonely widow who sits at home. What does she really long for? It's Jesus. The single person who longs to be married. You see, Jesus is what we all, deep down, were built for and long for. So as we run this race and we struggle with the pain of life and the difficulties of life, let's remember all that Jesus is to us. We've sung about the name of Jesus. Let's remember and fix our eyes on him that he is the one who understands, that walks with us, that is the comforter and the redeemer and the savior, our life who is with us. So that's the Jesus we are to fix our eyes on as we walk through life. But there's another question. How do we learn to be a person that can keep our eyes on him as we struggle, as we endure, as we run the race? I just want to point out three things that I see from the lives of these two great old saints, Simeon and Anna, that we see in this passage. Now, we don't know how old Simeon is, but it does say that he was waiting. He'd been told that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. And then it says when he finally did, Now, Lord, you finally let your bondservant depart in peace. I think he was ready to go. He was old. And it says about Anna, there's some confusion here whether she was 84 years old. 
I think from the text what it's saying is that she'd been a widow for 84 years old, and so she was probably about 105 or 106 years old. Yet these two old saints in this temple that's full of people milling around, confusion, sacrifices going on, people wandering in and out, these two old saints were able to see this infant son coming in the arms of this poor little couple and know it was Messiah. How did they have the spiritual eyes to see? I think there's some hints here in this passage. One is, and this is how we can develop spiritual vision to see God at work when maybe no one else can. Verse 25, the first description we have of Simeon is that he was righteous and devout. And it describes Anna as a widow who was a prophetess who never left the temple serving, and that's a word for serving God, following God, obeying God, both night and day. I think the first principle we see from their lives is that they never stopped obeying what God had given them to do. They'd walk through their lives and they'd struggled, but they just did the next thing that God had shown them to do. You see, what opens your eyes to the spiritual reality is not studying, it's not knowing the scriptures, though that helps, but ultimately, it's obeying. I like the way Oswald Chambers put it in his My My Utmost for His Highest. He puts it this way. All God's revelations are sealed until they're opened to us by obedience. You will never get them opened by philosophy or thinking. Immediately you obey, a flash of light comes. Obey God in the next thing he shows you, and instantly the next thing is opened up. One reads tomes on the work of the Holy Spirit when one five minutes of drastic obedience would make things as clear as a sunbeam. It's not study that does it, but obedience. The tiniest fragment of obedience and heaven opens and the profoundest truths of God are yours straight away. God will never reveal more truth about himself until you have obeyed what you know already. So you want to have spiritual vision? You want to be able to run the race and keep your eyes on Jesus? Just obey the next step he's given you to do whatever that is. Secondly, what I notice about Simeon and Anna is that they put their hope in God, not in this life, not in the flowers and the river and all that you run by as you run the race, but they put their hope on that finish line that someday I would be in heaven and God would be the one who would meet the longings of my heart someday. Therefore, I can press on and keep my eyes on the spiritual reality Hebrews chapter 11 describes the great heroes of the faith and how they were able to keep on keeping on. Where it says this, uh, Hebrews 11, verses 13 and 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Eyes on the finish line, on the hope. Keep pressing on. Keep your hope, not in this earth to satisfy. Realize this life will be painful. You'll have some broken bones. You'll have some swords pierced through your heart. But know that your real hope will be fulfilled someday. Put your hope in him. And then finally, the last point about Simeon and Anna that gave them spiritual vision was that they walked in dependence on the Spirit. Notice how Simeon's described. The Holy Spirit was upon him, verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Anna's described as one who would never leave the temple but kept praying and fasting. You see, their lives reflect an availability to God to depend on Him, to depend on His Spirit. Stephen Seaman says this, To be filled with the Spirit, then, is to be mastered and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Every part of us, heart, mind, soul, and strength, is made available to the Spirit and brought under His influence. Just saying, Lord, here I am. Live through me. Lord, I want to depend on You. The late Paul Rees used to say that to be filled with the Spirit is to have a quiet sense of the divine adequacy. I like that. A quiet sense of the divine adequacy. Lord, I'm inadequate. I cannot pull this off. I can't keep going. But Lord, I have a quiet sense that you are enough. That you will be what I need. Spiritual vision, endurance, comes from simply obeying what God's given you to do putting your hope in Him, depending on Him, and keeping your eyes on Jesus, on who He is. As we turn now to have communion together, I ask that you would just meditate as we sing, as we prepare to have communion, that you would consider who Jesus is. This one who came because He loved you enough to die, to be a helpless baby and grow up and struggle and be tempted and all of that. So he could ultimately die for you and me. Let's meditate on him as we celebrate communion together. Let me just say a word as we do so. Communion is for those who have found Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, who has committed their lives to him. It's a fellowship remembering what he has done for us. Now, some of you may be seekers. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never committed to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you never have, I encourage you to do so now. All it takes is asking Him to come into your life and forgive your sin. Maybe you're not ready, and that's okay. But if so, I'd encourage you to just let the bread and the cup go by. It's not for you yet. Maybe someday it will be when you're ready. There's no shame in in being a seeker. That's all right.